guys. I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. This is bonus episode number one, so thanks for checking it out. You probably are wondering what makes a bonus episode of this podcast different from a regular episode, so before we begin, let me take a second to explain what the bonus episodes are all about. As I write up notes for this show, I often find myself skipping over tons of great information simply because the information itself is too complicated or too tangential. I really want to keep the regular episodes of this show catered toward a general audience, so as a result, I can't always indulge in as many linguistic technicalities as I'd like. It's not that I doubt your intelligence. I'm sure that each and every one of you listening is nothing short of a brilliant human being, but even so, that doesn't mean that you've studied linguistics before. And the problem is that many linguistic concepts require some degree of prerequisite knowledge. However, I am aware of the fact that many of you are interested in this headier sort of stuff. I know I am. So that's what these bonus episodes are for. I'll be using them as a platform to explore subject matter that doesn't easily fit into the narrative format of the regular show. As always, I'm going to try my best to make things as easy to understand as I possibly can. So even if you don't have that master's degree in linguistics, don't run away just yet. All right, enough of me rambling. Let's get on to today's show. Why do words change? I answered this question briefly in episode two, and I'm going to repeat that same answer here. Words are constantly being used, and what is intended by each individual speaker is not exactly the same every time. If a new connotation for a certain word arises and is shared by enough people, then the precise meaning of that word will change. It's almost that simple. I say almost because when you pull out the proverbial microscope and really take a look at the phenomenon of semantic change, you find that there's a little more than meets the eye. By the way, semantic change is simply the technical term used for when the meaning of a word undergoes a change. Words and their meanings form a complex network of relationships, and understanding the different kinds of these relationships and how they interact with one another is fundamental to understanding the process of semantic change more deeply. Let's initiate this deeper understanding with what seems like an extremely basic question. What is a word? Well, a word is a series of letters that are strung together in a particular sequence and, theoretically, that particular sequence of letters corresponds to a particular meaning. In the simplest scenario, a one-to-one -one correlation exists between a word and its meaning. For instance, let's take a look at the word pineapple. I arbitrarily have chosen pineapple because I had some pineapple with my lunch today and it was delicious. The meaning of the word pineapple refers to a tropical spiny fruit and only a tropical spiny fruit. So the word to meaning ratio of pineapple is one to one. One word, one meaning. Sure, there may be many different types of pineapples like big ones, small ones, yellowish ones, brownish ones. But within the semantic parameters of the English language, pineapples are just pineapples. However, most word-to-meaning ratios are not this simple. The first phenomenon to complicate things is called synonymy, and I'm sure that all of you know what this is. Synonymy is when two different words correspond to one similar meaning. Rod and pole 
and happy and glad are examples of synonyms. The ratio of two different words corresponding to one similar meaning disrupts the nice and tidy one-to-one ratio exhibited by a word such as pineapple. The next phenomenon to complicate things is homonymy. Many of you probably know what homonymy is too, even if you didn't know that that's what it's called. Homonymy is when two words share the same pronunciation and sometimes the same spelling, but have completely unrelated meanings. A good example of homonymy are the words bank and bank. Which one refers to the financial institution, and which one refers to the land that slopes downward into a river? Without context, there's no way of knowing one bank from the other. Here, a single word corresponds to two different meanings, so again, the one-word-to-one meaning ratio is disrupted. The final phenomenon to complicate things is called polysemy, and it's the one most relevant to semantic change. Polysemy is the capacity for a single word to convey different but related meanings depending on the context in which it's used. You can think of polysemy sort of as the opposite of synonymy. If synonymy is when multiple words correspond to one similar meaning, polysemy is when one word corresponds to multiple similar meanings. So, what exactly does multiple similar meanings mean? The best way to answer this question is to look at some concrete examples. Consider the pair of words foot and footnote. The foot in footnote is not literally a foot. It's a metaphorical application of a pre-existing word, foot, to another pre-existing word, note, which in turn creates a brand new word, footnote. Because of the human brain's innate capacity to understand metaphors and integrate them into language, we are able to deduce the meaning of the new word footnote without much of an explanation. When all is said and done, a footnote is a note that appears at the bottom, or the foot, of a page. When used on its own, the word foot has a different literal meaning than when it appears in footnote, but because it's the same word and the two meanings are related, it demonstrates an example of polysemy. So, why is this worth sharing with you? Well, polysemy is often an active ingredient in the process of semantic change. It's relevant to the evolution of words overall because when words expand from strictly literal meanings, such as the body part known as a foot, To metaphorical meanings, such as the foot at the bottom of a page, the possibilities for reinterpretation and misinterpretation become virtually endless. Another great and inconspicuous example of polysemy is the word book. According to its literal definition, a book is just a collection of bound pages. This seems obvious enough. However, we also have the verb to book, as in to book an event. It's not too hard to see how this usage would have emerged. If you have to reserve a certain date, you can write it down in a book so you won't forget it. The verb to book is a consolidated way of saying exactly that. Even when you book something without literally writing it down, whether you're conscious of it or not, there's still the suggestion of an imaginary metaphorical book in which something is being written. The reason why I've brought up the word book is because the range of its polysemy has expanded in the last decade due to the development of ebooks. Ebooks emulate the content found in literal books while eliminating the physical necessity of bound pages. 
This evolution puts into question the literal parameters of what it means to be a book. This is a fascinating example that demonstrates not only how words change, but also why words have to change as time goes on and technology evolves. In the examples I just gave, it's easy to understand the metaphorically derived words footnote and to book without any context because the literal meanings of both foot and book are still in circulation. Similarly, when someone turns the page on their Kindle, even though there is no actual page being turned, the metaphor is still clear because we live in a world where real books with real pages still exist. However, the clarity of this metaphor may be lost in the future. If technology keeps moving forward at its current pace, it's totally feasible that one day ebooks will supersede physical books altogether. It's conceivable that future generations not drastically ahead of our own may have no idea what turning the page on their e-reader or Kindle or whatever actually refers to. It's not uncommon for technology to evolve faster than the lingo that surrounds it. Think about the expression, hold the line, in reference to a phone call. People still say this during cellular calls, even though there's no physical landline connecting the callers. If you were born after the widespread use of landline phones, though, you might not have any idea what this expression refers to. I've experienced this generational gap firsthand. I once asked a person younger than I to hold the line, please, and his response was, what line? The point I'm trying to make is that when the primary usage of a polysemous word falls out of circulation, but its metaphorical derivatives do not, the word's precise origins are no longer clear to us without an explanation. Remember, the reason why we can understand the polysemy demonstrated by the metaphorically derived words footnote and to book is because the literal words foot and book are still part of our common language today. A historical example of a polysemous word whose metaphorically derived usage has outlived its literal usage is the word decimate. In modern English, decimate means to waste and destroy a large portion of something. It's derived from the Latin word decimatio, which literally means to reduce in size by one-tenth. For the record, decum, the word from which decimatio is derived, is the Latin word for ten, and it's the same root word from which we get a handful of English words related to the number ten, such as dime, decade, and decathlon. Immediately, we see an obvious discrepancy between decimation's ancient and modern definitions. Reducing something in size by one-tenth is way less severe than nearly wiping it out of existence altogether. How did this misinterpretation occur, and how did it eventually come to replace the word's original meaning? The answer lies in a disciplinary practice utilized by the ancient Roman army that, according to early classical historian Livy, can be dated to 471 BCE. In this historical context, Decimation was used by senior military leaders to punish large groups of soldiers that were guilty of capital offenses such as mutiny. Soldiers were split up into groups of ten and essentially drew straws to determine one loser per group. The losers were then killed, usually by clubbing or stoning. Because decimation was a way of enforcing proper discipline among large groups, even if an individual soldier in one of these groups wasn't guilty of the alleged offense, he could still face death because of the process of random selection. 
If we look at dictionaries from the 17th century, we find that decimate had yet another meaning in circulation at the same time as the punitive form just described. Thomas Blount's Glossographia from 1656 and Alicia Cole's An English Dictionary from 1686 both include a definition of decimate which refers to the gathering of tithes. By definition, a tithe is one-tenth of an individual's earnings that is annually collected by a religious institution as a tax. The collection of tithes dates back to the Old Testament and is still in practice with some religious institutions today. Over the next two centuries, the tithe-related sense of the word fell out of usage, and the punitive sense of the word began suggesting a more general display of violence. We have several extant accounts of people from the 19th century commenting with aggravation on this newly emerging usage. When American literary scholar Richard White read the writings of Civil War correspondents such as, quote, The troops, although fighting bravely, were terribly decimated, end quote, he wrote, Quote, to use decimation as a general phrase for slaughter is simply ridiculous, end quote. And Albert Ayers, not the avant-garde saxophonist, but one of Richard White's contemporaries, echoed this sentiment in his statement, quote, This word, meaning as it properly does to tithe or to take one-tenth part, is hardly permissible in sentences such as, The regiment held its position, though was terribly decimated by the enemy's artillery, end quote. Since then, decimation has moved so far in the direction of general destruction that the word no longer has anything to do with its origins. I can think of two plausible reasons why the current definition of decimation wound up superseding the old one. First, decimation sounds a whole lot like devastation, and sometimes, when two words sound enough alike, their meanings can converge. Second, if the definition of decimation hadn't adapted to a broader application, then it might have fallen out of common usage altogether. Think about it. How often do you find yourself in need of a word that describes the destruction of precisely one-tenth of something? Probably never. To argue that our modern usage of decimation is incorrect is to argue what's called an etymological fallacy. As listeners of this podcast, the etymological fallacy is an important thing for you to understand. An etymological fallacy is an argument that states that the present meaning of a word must reflect its etymological or historical meaning. This, of course, is total nonsense. Imagine time traveling to a future where ebooks have superseded physical books, but the verb phrase, to turn the page, has survived as a linguistic fossil. Could we legitimately criticize our future generation's adaptation of this phrase as wrong? Of course not. This kind of fossilization happens all the time. Think about the expression, neck of the woods. Here, neck refers not to the body part, but to a parcel of land. A few other common expressions that contain linguistic fossils are hem and haw, to and fro, out of kilter, and kith and kin. Haw, fro, kilter, and kith are all dead words that have managed to survive in expressions and idiomatic phrases centuries after the words themselves. Well, that's it for this one, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to reach me directly with comments, criticisms, or questions about the show, you can email me at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. 
If you're already in love with the show and want something more, head over to the Words for Granted blog at wordsforgranted.com. I'll be posting short articles about the origins of words relevant to current events. I also urge you to leave a positive review on iTunes if you get the chance. It really helps put the show into the hands of more listeners and ultimately keeps the show alive. If you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so via Patreon. For those of you who don't know, Patreon is a great crowdfunding service that helps independent creators get their work out into the world. You can pledge as little or as much money as you'd like. Just head over to wordsforgranted.com to find the link. You can also follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And, as always, I'd like to give a shout-out to Zach Tenorio Miller from Arc Iris for providing Words for Granted with music. You can find out more about Arc Iris at arcirismusic.com. All right, thanks for listening. I'll see you guys next time here at Words for Granted. <laughs>